0: You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 23rd of October 2023 on Monocle Radio. It's 1800 in Jakarta, 1400 in Istanbul. Midday here at Midori House in London and 8am in Buenos Aires. You're listening to Monocle Radio. The Briefing starts now. Hello and a warm welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson and coming up on today's programme, the latest from Gaza as Israel says it's launched limited raids overnight and a third convoy of aid gets through. Also ahead with the Biden administration so closely involved with Israel's military plans, we examine what it means for America's Israeli population. Also ahead, a surprise result in the Argentinian elections as well. But instead of a victory for the libertarian firebrand Javier Mellé, the country's incumbent finance minister has won the most votes. We'll ask what happens next. That's all coming up right here on The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. We begin today's programme with the latest on the Israel-Hamas war. There are reports that a third convoy of aid has made its way through through the crossing between Egypt and Gaza. The UN this weekend criticised the agonisingly slow pace of aid reaching those most in need. Meanwhile, the Reuters news agency has been reporting today that Israeli ground forces have mounted limited raids into the Gaza Strip overnight to fight Palestinian gunmen and that airstrikes were being focused on sites where Hamas was assembled. To attack any wider Israeli invasion. Well, Abir Ayoub is a Palestinian journalist who's monitoring events from Istanbul. A very good afternoon to you, Abir. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. Um, Just explain to us a little bit personally speaking, you have family in Gaza, don't you? So, what news is coming
1: from them? Well, I barely hear news from my family because they are kind of disconnected, as they don't have electricity, they don't have internet connection. Uh, so uh, I try sometimes to call them via um, uh, like international calls not internet. Uh, I managed to talk to my family yesterday. Uh, they told me that they are running out of water. Uh, they now are mixing some of the left of the drinking water and uh, the tap water so it can, you know, uh, taste better. They told me that they don't even know what's going on around. They just hear bombardments here and there, but they don't know uh, where are these uh, uh, bombings because they don't have access to the news, to the Internet. And they told me that um, they are running out of uh, basic goods because once the supermarket, uh, for example, is uh, running out of uh, a specific product, there is no chance that they will have it again. Um bakeries stopped working because of uh, the blackout, uh, electricity shut down. The humanitarian situation is going worse and worse every day. Tell us a little
0: bit more, therefore, about the reaction to the news that a third convoy of aid may have made its way through the crossing between Egypt and Gaza at the Rafah crossing.
1: Well, people are not optimistic with these, uh, you know, uh, humanitarian aids getting in because mainly... Um, What Gaza needs now is fuel because you are talking about hospitals now. Five hospitals were totally uh, out of service three of them were partially out of service due to the uh, fuel shortage uh, water purifying stations uh, are totally um, uh, closed due to the uh, you know electricity um, uh, cut and also the fuel shortage so what gaza needs now is fuel so if you exclude this and uh, give them just some food and only limited uh, amount of uh, humanitarian aids this is according to the um, Ministry of Interior in Gaza. This is maybe one, um, like it, it's 1% of what people really need there.
0: Tell us a little bit more about the the reports uh, that we've got in from Reuters saying that Israeli ground forces have been mounting limited raids into the Gaza Strip overnight, fighting gunmen and that airstrikes are being focused on sites where Hamas is assembling to attack any wider Israeli invasion. How much is what the Israelis are talking about on the ground being being afe- affecting the daily lives and the ability to to move around or to operate if you if you are a citizen in Gaza?
1: I don't think this is true at all because we have uh, uh, during the night 200 civilians were killed uh, due to uh, airstrikes in the north and in the south in Jibalia, in Khan Yunis uh, today in the Gaza City I don't think that the airstrikes were less than any uh, night before. Uh, My niece she lives in the north, she told me that she couldn't uh, sleep for a minute last night due to the constant bombardment Um. In the last few hours, the United States
0: has advised Israel to de- delay a ground assault of the Gaza Strip to, to allow for more hostage negotiations and humanitarian aid delivery um, Tell us a, a little bit about what that what difference that would make to those in Gaza
1: uh, I'll tell you that people in Gaza didn't expect the ground invasion since day one because what what Israel wants is to take its soldiers and hostages and international people out of Gaza. And having a ground invasion may lead to killing them instead of freeing them. I would say that ground invasion wasn't really uh, something that people expected, but still these news uh, kind of gave some relief to, to people in Gaza because they know ground invasion means totally destroying Uh, the Gaza Strip.
0: What happens next then for those who are in Gaza?
1: What happens next? Mm.
0: For your family, I mean, is there a sense that they will have to move? Is there a sense that they can stay put for the time being? The the waiting game must be very difficult.
1: Well, I'll tell you a sentence that uh, my sister told me today. I could reach my sister for the first time in 15 days. She told me that I'm pretty sure... Our turn is coming, but we just don't know when. I know that a lot more people will would be killed and we are ready to hear more bad news for our beloved ones and even uh, ourselves being killed. So no, to be honest, uh, no, uh, no expectations for better days are coming because it has been more than two weeks now. Every day is worse than the other. Uh, also, there's really no no. You cannot expect things because uh, hospitals, churches, uh, residential residential places were were targeted. So you you really cannot expect what would happen next.
0: Abiyah Ayub, thank you very much indeed for joining us on Monaco Radio. You're listening to the briefing. Now, this weekend saw protests in major cities across the world. Demonstrators took to the streets of the likes of Paris, London and New York. Some were calling for support for Palestine, others for support for Israel. Well, Marisa Mazria-Katz is a journalist and producer based between New York City and Providence, Rhode Island, where she joins me from now. A very good morning to you, Marisa. Good morning. So in the centre of New York City, we see a small strip of land thousands of miles away Gaza, causing enormous turmoil.
2: Yes, that's that's correct. Yes, I would say that there was, there has been a huge reaction to it, particularly in in New York and of course
0: across the United States. Tell us exactly what it's been like this weekend, because we've seen pictures of protests going on. But who was protesting? Where were they? And how widespread was it? Well, I think in terms of the protests,
2: I would say that they were mostly pro-Palestinian over the weekend. But there were um, pro-Israeli, I would say, mostly last week. But I would say that um, in terms of what we saw last week, which was primarily when a lot of Jewish Americans were out protesting, I would say that you had two kinds of protests that were really taking place. One was, you know, in D.C., there were two in particular that were from the progressive left, and they were chanting, not in our name, and they were calling for a ceasefire. And there were at least, you know, 1,500 people there. That was on Monday. And 50 activists were arrested for blocking the gates of the White House. And on Wednesday, there was an even bigger protest. This was also in D.C. And this took place in Capitol Hill's Cannon Building, which is, you know, the oldest congressional office building. And around 400 demonstrators at this one were detained. And they were also calling for an immediate ceasefire. Um, They were organized by two progressive Jewish groups called Jewish Voice for Peace and and If Not Now, which are anti-occupation. There were also, you know, dueling pro-Palestinian, pro-Israeli rallies that were held at Washington Square. And there were hundreds on the Palestinian side and dozens on the pro-Israel side. But also, you know, last week there were in Times Square pro-Israel demonstrations that, Um, where you saw hundreds of people rallying, and they were demanding the release of the hostages taken by Hamas who are in Gaza. And some of them are American, as we know. And Senator Chuck Schumer spoke to the crowd in support of Israel and, and fighting back against Hamas. And over the weekend, you know, two American hostages were released from Gaza. But these protests are really aimed at keeping pressure on Biden to use whatever tool he has to get the Americans out.
0: Indeed, the fact that Joe Biden has taken such a a close stand with the Israeli plans. I mean, how is that playing out with Israelis in in the United States in particular?
2: Well, I think, you know, more than Israelis, I could talk about Jewish Americans because I think generally Israelis have seen Biden's support as being in some way, stepping in for a vacuum for a prime minister that they don't feel has truly supported them or been there in some sense, you know, um, in particular after October 7th. So, you know, you, you hear people thinking of Biden and, you know, Israelis thinking of Biden as their president too. But for Jewish Americans, I would say that there have been various responses, but I've been seeing mostly that the majority of American Jews are expressing uh, gratitude for Biden's support of Israel. And I mean, there's there are, of course, the aid packages and his trip there, his speeches. And I think most Americans are seeing that as a or interpreting it as a clear commitment to the country. And yeah. And so I think there have been many Jews that have expressed relief seeing his unequivocal support. But... I want to emphasize that this isn't to say that there aren't, you know, also they're not also, you know, entirely on board. Right. They're they're also conflicted about a humanitarian disaster. And maybe they feel Israel is within its rights to do something. But they think, you know, could it be too much? And they're asking themselves, you know, I think, is Biden enabling that?
0: And just by taking a look at what's happening online, and the the bitterness and the anger and the vitriol that you can witness in a in a flash, the anti-Semitic protests, the the the, the anti-Islamic state's uh, um, comments as well. Um, how much is that souring the atmosphere where where you are, or is this something which is 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 being confined? No, you know,
2: it's so interesting. I think that everybody, depending on their algorithms, the people they follow are all having quite different experiences online. I mean, consensus is kind of hard to come by these days when we are so centered on our own media feeds, which can vary, right? And so I have, though, generally felt that a lot of Jews are feeling that the anti-Semitism that is coming out in these protests has been very difficult to absorb. And I think that even if you are against the Gaza, um, what's happening in Gaza and and calling for a ceasefire, I still don't think that that really kind of inures you to seeing, um, you know, really explicitly anti-Semitic things online. So that's kind of, a feeling that we're, you know, that a lot of Jewish Americans are feeling scared by that, I think. And then also trying to channel whatever energies they have towards understanding this very complicated situation. And then also many are trying to do something about it, whether it's protesting, calling for the ceasefire. So there's a number of ways in which this is unfolding, but I do think Sometimes when these protests have come with these anti-Semitic responses or chants or whatnot, it has been really, you know, really disconcerting.
0: Marisa Mazriaket, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the line from the US. The time here in London is 12.15. A quick summary now of the latest headlines. Here's Christy
3: O'Grady. Thanks, Emma. Israel warned Hezbollah it risked dragging Lebanon into a war after Israeli forces exchanged fire with the Lebanese militant group overnight. Hezbollah, which is funded by Iran, said on Sunday that five more of its militants had been killed in the clashes. Israel also intensified its airstrikes on the Gaza Strip, ahead of an expected ground invasion. Representatives from the U.S. Republican Party will meet on Monday evening for a candidates' forum as the bitterly divided party struggles to elect its next House Speaker. Nine congressmen entered the contest to succeed Kevin McCarthy, who was ousted by the right wing of his own party earlier this month. Former legislator Maria Corina Mercado has claimed victory in the race to lead Venezuela's opposition coalition. In theory, she will challenge incumbent Nicolas Maduro in 2024 elections. But the 56-year-old is currently barred from running by his authoritarian government. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Emma.
0: Thank you very much indeed, Christy. Now, there was an unexpected result in this weekend's presidential election in Argentina. It had been widely predicted that the libertarian radical Javier Millet would win, albeit falling short of enough votes to win outright. However, the country's economy minister, Sergio Massa, beat expectations and beat Mr Millet by some margin, contradiction contradicting predictions that he'd be absolutely hammered given the way that they've been running the country. Well, Monoc- Monocle's Alex de Royer and Fernanda Augusta Pacheco are here to help us understand the result and what it means. A very good afternoon to you, gentlemen. Good afternoon. Um, good afternoon. Alex, let me begin with you. Could you just explain to us what, what happened this weekend?
4: <laughs> <laughs> Many things happened, but one of them is that Sergio Massa, the current economist, economics minister, uh, won the election with 36% uh, and second came Javier Millet with 29%. And they'll be both going to a second round or a ballotage uh, in November.
0: And this was rather unexpected, wasn't it? Because many had had thought that Javier Millet was going to win enough votes, not to grab the presidency outright, but at least to beat his rivals.
4: Yeah uh that's what uh was thought that was the prediction uh however sergio massa sort of pulled uh from the shadows and gained many many votes uh they gained um about 3% more votes than uh they did before and um Bullrich, uh here is the big loser of the day um however in the ballotage we'll have to look at how Boric voters uh, will decide between Massa and Millet.
0: Just tell us a little bit more, um, Alex, about about Millet. I mean, he was, he was touted internationally as being a sort of a firebrand, radical, eccentric economist and self-described anarcho-capitalist. I mean, I don't think that even begins to describe what he's like, does it?
4: <laughs> it doesn't. I mean, Millet, I would say, Fernando asked me the other day, I would say he is the Argentine version, maybe of Bolsonaro and Trump, but with this anarcho capitalistic uh point of view. So I would say he shows himself as a freedom lover and somebody that's gonna bring freedom back to Argentina. However, he has ties with people from a very conservative and hard right background, which means he is a hard right populist.
0: So we we have our, um here, Faye, this this situation you said he was in a, a bit of Trump, a bit of Bolsonaro. But by all accounts when you look at him, he seems even more if you could concentrate it in that sort of absolute decision to... I mean, he wants to do goodness knows what, doesn't he? He wants to get rid
5: (laughs) of... Sell organs, human organs. He wants
0: to sell... Okay, (laughs) I mean,
5: one of them. One of the many things he proposed. But
0: what does he stand for?
5: Well, I think he stands you know, especially in a country like Argentina, which we have to be fair, Alex, we know this. Inflation is extremely high. I mean, it's a country that has severe difficulties here. Uh, So, I mean, I I don't think the difference between Millet and Trump and Bolsonaro, I don't think the culture wars is as strong in Argentina. I think people... are just in despair, uh, because, you know, clearly the Peronista government didn't work for them economically, but they also don't trust the traditional right wing, because they've seen what happened in Mauricio Macri's government in the past, so they want something new. And of course, that new thing is Javier Millet, which, I mean... He is charismatic. I mean, he does have these eccentric uh, clones, dogs, among many other things. <laughs> I mean, it's an interesting character, perhaps even more eccentric than Bolsonaro or Trump. So I have a feeling that people are voting for him out of despair in, in many ways.
0: So... It, Alex, it's as as Faye says, it's not necessarily a, a deep desire to have uh, a man who, what he said, has cloned dogs um, and wants to get rid of the central bank. He wants to get rid of the Argentinian peso and replace it with the US dollar. I mean, these are deeply radical changes. It, is Faye right here in saying, actually, this is not... Um, this is not a vote for Millet, this is a major protest vote against the Peronist coalition.
4: Yeah, I I think I have to agree with that point. Uh, And I think it's also uh, one of the reasons why Massa sort of won uh, some votes over the past month is that because he showed himself as somebody that could argue with Millet about ideas, about the role of institutions and the state, whereas Millet was seen as maybe a jump to nowhere.
0: Do you think that Millet will win ultimately? That, that that Massa will have had his his moment when people will realise actually we don't want the incumbent, we don't want the finance minister to continue because that will you know that doesn't bring any change.
4: I'm not ready to answer that question. I think both <laughs> uh, have everything that it takes to become president. Um, however, I think the, the game is set to zero and it's all about to play.
5: And if I may say, if Massa continues with his fairly clever campaign, I think that the reason why he did better, he did kind of a lot of ads of fear. They He was talking directly to Argentinians because a lot of Argentinians, they, they get state money uh, and, and they are scared that if Millet wins because he doesn't believe in the state, they will lose that. So if Massa continues with that kind of clever campaign, especially to women and people in the big cities as well. He could win but I, I agree with Alex. I think it's a half-half situation here.
0: And if you are Brazilian and watching this happening down the road, I mean this, this is a huge, huge sort of Turning point, isn't it? This this crossroads that we could go con- continuity government or we could go down the route that you've just described. I, I mean, think Brazil, Brazil and Argentina have this amazing trading partnership, don't they?
5: Exactly. We, I think when we look at Argentina and say, "Oh, we've seen this before," uh, that there's that kind of sa- uh, sense in Brazil. And if Milei wins, it's going to be weird because he doesn't want to trade. I mean, it, of course, there'll be some trade, but he's not going to uh, be the best friends of Brazil and China, mm-hmm. which are Argentina's biggest trading partners. If Massa wins, I think this the status quo I think nothing really will change Uh, but yeah it will be a big change in the region as well
0: Fernando Agusta Pacheco and Alex de Royer thank you so much for joining me in the studio you're listening to The Briefing live on Monocle Radio Some astonishing pictures emerged this weekend of two ships, one Chinese, the other Filipino, sailing dangerously close to each other in the highly disputed South China Sea. Both sides have accused the other of deliberately bumping into each other. And since then, Manila has summoned Beijing's ambassador after accusing China of illegal and dangerous behaviour. Well, Richard Heidarian is a political analyst and a columnist for the Philippine Daily Inquirer. Good afternoon, Richard.
6: Uh, good afternoon to you,
0: So just explain to us, we saw sort of stills and a couple of moving pictures, but what do we know about what happened between these two ships?
6: Well, to be fair, both sides have very different uh, portrayal or account of what happened. Uh, the Chinese are maintaining that what happened was extremely lawful and professional in that there, it was a routine operations by China to ensure that they protect their sovereign rights and interests in the area. But the Philippines is maintaining that uh, it was harassed by China and that China has no uh, business whatsoever preventing the Philippines from resupplying missions, uh, you know, within its own exclusive economic zone. Just to be clear, we're talking about the second Thomas Scholl, which per an ar- arbitration award in 2016 uh, is a low tide elevation, meaning it's not a territory to be claimed. So it's an extension of the Philippines continental shelf and therefore fully falls within the Philippines uh, sovereign rights. So for the Philippines, they don't know what laws China is referring to. And clearly China's nine dash line claims are covering 85 percent of the entire South China sea basin has no basis in modern international law. So this is the situation we have right now. China insisting that it's within its rights and the Philippines is insisting that China has no rights whatsoever in the area.
0: And we now have uh, in Manila summoning the, the, summoning the Beijing ambassador after accusing China of illegal and dangerous behavior.
6: Yeah, the situation is really, really troubling. I think there's a bigger picture to this. I mean, yes, on one hand, the Philippines and China have been pushing the envelope in the South China Sea over the past six to seven months, especially after Philippine President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. decided to expand security cooperation with the United States under the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement. So now America will have access to a whole host of bases facing the South China Sea, but also potentially facing Taiwan. That has Clearly, enraged the Chinese. But let's not forget that uh, just uh, over uh, the weekend, uh, President Biden also was insisting that the United States can be a reliable partner and can help allies all across the world. And we're talking about already two conflict zones one in the case of Ukraine, and the other one, of course, also in the case of the Middle East and the ongoing Israeli operations uh, in Gaza. I think China is calculating that the United States is bogged down and that the United States is perhaps too distracted to be able to meaningfully assist its allies uh, in Asia, and therefore the Philippines is suddenly finding itself in a very vulnerable position. Of course, as Filipinos, we are we have nothing against America helping its allies in other parts of the world, but the reality is that the United States is no longer in a position to conduct or wage. Uh, you know, effective operations in multiple theaters simultaneously. And in our belief, China is the real threat to America's global primacy and the Philippines and to a greater degree neighboring Taiwan are facing really existential threats from China. So, so there's a bigger picture to this. And we fear that China will keep on pushing the envelope and even may consider so-called short, sharp wars or some bloody but, uh, you know, quite small calibrated uh, coercive operations against the Philippines in order to reimpose its will and regain the initiative from a seemingly distracted America.
0: Richard Ardara, and thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Briefing. <laughs> you're in a rush and you need to beat the traffic and you'd quite like a nice view during your journey well if you're a passenger in the Turkish region of Cappadocia you can use an Uber to grab a hot air balloon well Hannah Lucinda Smith is our Istanbul correspondent and can bring us all the details Hannah very good afternoon to you good afternoon so is it as simple as hopping on the app and expecting a balloon to rise elegantly over the horizon or is it, is it a, rather more complicated than that?
7: It's a little bit more complicated. I mean, I think in the sort of grand scheme of arranging a hot air balloon trip, it's still, you know, reasonably simple. So you need to book at least 12 hours in advance. Um, And the balloon, there's one trip a day. It takes off in the early morning. It's an hour and a half, and it will cost you 150 euros. So it's very much a kind of set service. It's not uh, exactly the equivalent of the, you know, Uber cars, where you just wherever you are, you just you book it and it turns up. Um, but I think what this is really is interesting for a number of reasons. I mean, first of all, is because Uber is trying to expand uh, beyond its traditional services, which of course was taxi services to start with, then expanded into Uber Eats, for example. Increasingly, it's trying to really break into these sort of tourism experiences. So they've already launched a service for ordering a tuk-tuk in India, for example, or uh, boats in Greece. So it's very much an extension of that. Um, But then the other interesting thing is that Uber's not had a particularly easy time in Turkey over the years. It launched here in 2014, um, became kind of popular, and pretty quickly, as in a lot of other places, the taxi drivers, particularly in Istanbul, got very angry about it, started lobbying the government. Um, It's an important lobby for for the government. There's a lot of taxi drivers here. Um, And it was a kind of ongoing court battle. The courts ruled initially that Uh, They've broken unfair competition rules. They shut Uber down. That was in 2019. And it's only in June this year that the Supreme Court finally overruled that and Uber's back. And it's still a fairly small market here in Turkey. There's about 6 million users. That's less than 10% of the population most of them in Istanbul. So I think this is really uh, quite symbolic and a bit of a sign for me that they're back in the market here.
0: Indeed, I mean, if you are uh, the operator of a hot air balloon in Cappadocia, should you be as worried about your patch as the Istanbul taxi drivers?
7: I don't think you should. I mean, first of all, this isn't an ongoing service. It's only gonna run from today until the middle of November. And that's to coincide with the uh, 100th anniversary of the Turkish Republic. Of course, they might bring it back as a as a kind of full service later on. I think they're testing the waters here, um, but also, yeah, the balloon rides in Cappadocia it's a really classic Turkey experience. If you Google Cappadocia, it's the kind of first thing that will come up in Google image search. These hundreds of balloons there's about 150 every day a launch, usually at sunrise. People get married on them. Um, you know, it's it's a classic thing to do. And Cappadocia is a huge tourist attraction in itself. In, in 2022, about 10% uh, of all the foreign tourists who visited Turkey visited Cappadocia. Um, so I don't think that the, the tourism businesses have much to worry about right now.
0: It's, is so, though, very briefly, a slight fear that if the, if the money that once was going to go to the, the balloon operators of Cappadocia will now go into the pockets of Uber, it could wear away at the Turkish tourism um, value and income.
7: Yeah, I mean, I think it is a very, very small part. I mean, Turkey. Uh, so tourism is a massive part of the economy here in Turkey. It accounts for around 12% of of GDP. A lot of that is small business owners. Of course, you have the kind of you know huge chain hotels in places like Antalya, um, but you know in places like Cappadocia, there is still a lot of boutique hotels, uh, small restaurants, things like that. A lot of people do uh, earn their income from it. So I, I don't think it's going to pose a huge risk to that just yet.
0: Hannah Lucinda-Smith, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Istanbul. You're listening to The Briefing and that's all the time we have for today's programme. My thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Lillian Fawcett and Christy O'Grady. Our research was Harrison Warlock and our studio man- manager was Mariella Bevan. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time, but for now from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening.